This is WTMJ Nights. And now here's your host, Dan Schaefer. Good evening. My name is Dan Schaefer, and welcome to WTMJ Nights. I'm going to be your guest host this evening. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with me and my work, I am the founder and publisher and writer of a website called The Recombobulation Area. Uh, I've been a journalist here in Milwaukee for more than a decade, working in places from Milwaukee Magazine, Milwaukee Business Journal, and such. Uh, and now I run a website called The Recombobulation Area, where I write a weekly opinion column and online publication covering news and politics in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. And I will be your guest host this evening on WTMJ Nights. Uh, we will be taking your calls, of course, calls and texts on the old National Bank talk and text line 855-616-1620. That's 855-616-1620. Obviously a big day here uh, at the station. News earlier today that uh, longtime afternoon host Jeff Wagner is retiring after 25 years on Milwaukee's radio. I just wanted to extend my congratulations to Mr. Wagner as well. 25 years is a pretty remarkable amount of time to be hosting the radio. Uh, And congratulations and all the best in what's next to Mr. Jeff Wagner. Uh, And uh, just to take a look ahead for what we have planned for your show this evening uh, on WTMJ Nights, we have a number of guests who are going to be joining us. Angela Lang from Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, otherwise known as Block, uh, is going to be joining us later this hour to talk about a new report on voting rights that their group produced and published earlier this week. Uh, you can see her column on that report on the recombobulation area uh, right now. We'll also be joined later in the show by Marquette University Professor Phil Rocco. Phil is going to be joining us to talk about the stadium deal for the Milwaukee Brewers. He wrote a column on that at the recombobulation area, as did I. So we will have much to discuss on that topic as well. Uh, And then, as anybody who knows me knows well, I am a big fan uh, of the Milwaukee Bucks. So Justin Garcia is going to be joining us toward the end of the show to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks. Some news today with the Milwaukee Bucks, departure of assistant coach, Terry Stotts. So we'll have something. We'll have a chance to discuss that news. To t- discuss the latest in the preseason. One week away uh, from the start of the season for the Milwaukee Bucks. So we've got a whole lot to get to tonight. Between uh, I will be here with you until nine p.m. Uh, so we've got a lot. We're going to have a chance to discuss. We'll be taking your calls. We'll be taking your texts. Looking forward to having a wonderful conversation and and having some time to share with you to discuss the news of the day, discuss some big issues, and uh, and just enjoy our time together on WTMJ Nights. Again, my name is Dan Schaefer. I write and publish The Recombobulation Area, a weekly opinion column and online publication covering news and politics in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. You can find it when we publish on Substack, recombobulationarea.substack.com. Also, you can find it at therecombobulationarea.news. Our, our work there has received 10 Milwaukee Press Club Awards over the last few years. Uh, so do check out our work. You can become a free subscriber. If you want to check out what's going on there, you can also become a paid subscriber uh, to support the growing local independent journalism that we do at the Recombobulation Area. Uh, as I mentioned, we will have a number of guests over the course of the show tonight. 
Angela Lang from Block will be here later this hour. Phil Rocco from Marquette University will be here during the 8 o'clock hour. And Justin Garcia, uh, who you know, as uh, com- uh, t- who talks about the Bucks here on 620 WTMJ. Uh, he is going to be joining us at 8.30. We will also, uh, just as a programming note, we will be also carrying live the address from President Joe Biden uh, in regards to the situation in Israel. That is scheduled to take place uh, at about 7 p.m. tonight, and we will be carrying that speech live. So stick with us if you want to listen to that as well. Uh, and I, so to get things started with the show today, I wanted to talk about one of the issues that I have covered a great deal at the recombobulation area, um, and that issue is redistricting. And there was a hearing, public hearing today uh, on the future of redistricting in the state of Wisconsin uh, it's a really interesting bill. I think we're going to be able to to get into that, you know, in the next segment here uh, as we we talk through some of the news of the day. That was one of the big ones. There was finally a public hearing on redistricting in the state of Wisconsin. So we're going to have a chance to to talk about that a little bit. Uh, and if you'd like to join the conversation, the old National Bank talk and text line eight five five six one six one six twenty. And we are going to be headed to break right now. We will talk more about that redistricting hearing and the news happening there after the break. Stick with us. WTMJ Nights. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm your guest host, and I am the writer and publisher of the weekly opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. Yes, that is named after the goofy post-security area at the Milwaukee airport. You know, we have a very discombobulating news cycle for, for in Wisconsin, and it's always good to, to stop and recombobulate now, put your shoes on, get yourself together so you can get to your gate. Uh, so that's what le- we like to provide at the recombobulation area. And so we can do a little bit of that tonight while we're, while we're on the show with you. You can feel free to join the conversation at any time on the old National Bank talk and text line 855-616-1620. And as we're, I was looking through some of the headlines today, some of the news of the day, some of the things that I was following along with, uh, one of the big issues that I have written a whole lot about at the recombobulation area over the years is redistricting and gerrymandering. And there was today at the in the Wisconsin State Senate, uh, there was a public hearing on the Republican proposal to implement nonpartisan redistricting based on the Iowa model of redistricting. Well, that that bill was introduced about a month ago by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss uh, and in, almost immediately was voted on in the state assembly. And so that was introduced, and within about 48 hours, they were already voting on it. They did not have a public hearing on that bill. A lot of people had a lot of questions. Uh, was it the Iowa model? Did it have the same similarities to it that they had there? How would that Iowa model translate to Wisconsin? So we didn't really have a lot of time to talk, talk through some of those questions. And I think some people had a lot of questions about what that would be, because it would be a big change to the way Wisconsin re- draws its maps for the Wisconsin state legislature. And so that, that bill was ultimately passed by the Repub- with Republican votes uh, in the Wisconsin state legislature, in the state assembly, and then it has since moved to the state Senate. Now, the state Senate has had a little bit, not not quite the same appetite to address this bill that the state assembly had, 
But they were they gave it a public hearing today. And that was what a lot of fair maps advocates and people have been hoping for was the the chance to sit down and speak with legislators about what what was happening. So there was a committee hearing uh, at the state capitol today. Uh, and I, I had a chance to tune in for the first couple hours of that hearing. And throughout the course of the hearing, a lot of people had a lot of questions about this redistricting proposal. Uh, was it really the Iowa model that has been lauded as the, you know, kind of the gold standard of nonpartisan redistricting? Basically, what, the good things about the Iowa model is that it takes the process of drawing the maps away from the legislators. And it gives it to the nonpartisan, kind of the equivalent of what we have here in Wisconsin called the Legislative Reference Bureau. Kind of the people who are working the nuts and bolts behind the scenes. So it's a nonpartisan process the way the maps are drawn. I think that's the thing that people like about the Iowa model and would like to have translated to what's happening in Wisconsin. The problem is the implementation and the approval process. And some of the there were some key differences from the Iowa model, some key differences from nonpartisan redistricting bills that Democrats had introduced uh, in previous years. So people, a lot of people, you know, on the left, independents, have who, people who have voiced their support for fair maps in Wisconsin. As we know, in the state of Wisconsin, we have some of the most gerrymandered state legislative maps anywhere in the country. Metric after metric, study after study shows just how deeply gerrymandered our state legislature is. You know, we're a 50-50 purple state, but Republicans are nearing two-thirds supermajorities. They have it in the state Senate. They're close to it in the state assembly. Uh, that's just, you know, one of many, many examples I can share about how deeply gerrymandered Wisconsin is. So we need to address this issue. But I think that people should really be approaching this bill with a lot of skepticism. People from Iowa have come out and said this is not the Iowa model. It doesn't include the same level of judicial oversight that is required in the Iowa model. It doesn't include the same threshold for change and approval of the maps. You don't necessarily need a broad bipartisan support for new maps the way the Iowa model might. And I think a lot of people have some questions because of that. Also, you have some very different demographics in in Iowa versus Wisconsin, particularly comes to communities of color in Milwaukee. There isn't an equivalent of that in Iowa at all. So people had a lot of questions. And throughout the course of this hearing, I, I watched for about a couple hours. There were zero people saying that, yes, we want to do the Republican redistricting model. Yes, we want the spe- the, the bill that Speaker Voss passed earlier uh, earlier this fall, I believe it was in September, to to be the way that Wisconsin does redistricting. Let's not rush this process. Let's let's think it through. Let's slow down. And and I think you also have to consider the fact that the Wisconsin Supreme Court within the last couple of weeks accepted a case on redistricting. The, those challenges coming from the group law forward that's a really important case and I think this this legislation to a certain extent is seeking to undercut that case. And, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about Janet Protasiewicz and and her comments on the maps, whether she would recuse. She recently said she would not. I don't think there is any real reason for her to recuse in this case. So I think we're we're looking at a very complicated landscape for redistricting. I think it was really important that we had that public hearing today. uh, And we will talk about that a little bit more after the break here. Uh, We are going to commercial My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm your guest host for this evening. This is WTMJ Nights. 
Welcome back to WTMJ Nighttime, your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the public hearing on redistricting that was happening today in Madison. Uh, very, very important bill, important opportunity for many people to have their voices heard on this issue. And and this is this is a big one in Wisconsin. Uh, we know that Wisconsin has some of the most gerrymandered maps anywhere in the country. Uh, the, the Republican advantage in those maps that we've had for the last 12 years has been substantial, even though Wisconsin is a 50-50 purple state where elections are often decided by decimal points. We often see Republicans close to supermajority status in the state legislature. I think that really warps the way that our politics work. So we're trying to find a solution here. So I think a lot of people wanted to see a solution in the form of a lawsuit uh, which is continuing to go forward, uh, a lawsuit brought by the group Law Forward, uh, and they actually had filed some briefs earlier this week to the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, on the case, the case that the Wisconsin Supreme Court and its new liberal majority uh, decided to take in a recent ruling. So th- that is continuing to move forward. Briefs from that lawsuit filed earlier this week. Uh, I believe members of the legislature are now part of the la- to that lawsuit. The governor is now a party to that lawsuit. This is a pretty big deal, and so there will be oral arguments in that lawsuit in about a month on November 21st, uh, but some of the briefs filed this week saying uh, from Law Forward contend that upon determining that, and I'm quoting here from the lawsuit, upon determining that the existing legislative maps violate the Wisconsin Constitution, this court should ensure that any remedial maps reflect its nonpartisan role and incorporate traditional redistricting requirements and criteria once this court holds the existing maps are unconstitutional, it must impose a proper remedy by mid-March 2024. So that would mean a pretty big change in the way Wisconsin has its votes for those 99 members of the Wisconsin State Assembly, 33 members of the Wisconsin State Senate, the way that majority breaks down. And the, the public hearing that was held today in Madison uh, you know, like I mentioned before the break, I had I had a chance to watch a couple hours of that hearing. Most of the uh, all of the speakers that I saw in those first couple hours of the hearing voiced opposition to a Republican bill introduced over the last couple months that would in- implement nonpartisan redistricting. I think a lot of people are very skeptical and with good reason of this bill. Uh, it actually the. Uh, there's many who have said it is riddled with loopholes. Uh, I took took a chance to dive into it in a recent column at the Recombobulation area. It doesn't in, indeed seem to be riddled with loopholes. Uh, Robin Voss introduced this, passed it quickly in the state assembly without a public hearing. It got that public hearing in the state senate today. So I do appreciate that Republican leadership in the state senate granted this a public hearing, allowed people to speak. There were about four hours, I think, uh, of testimony. Not aware of a whole lot of support for that bill from that public hearing, uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens as it moves forward. I think a lot of people are saying that this is the Iowa model of redistricting. You even had people from Iowa, from both parties, respond and say, "This is not the Iowa model." So when you hear Republican leadership say that this is the Iowa model, and you hear people from Iowa say that this is not the Iowa model, that should tell you something. So I think it is important to have these conversations in in the public hearing that we had in the Wisconsin State Senate today. But I think it is also important to 
remember that this lawsuit from Law Forward, from others, is continuing to go forward, and that could offer more of a reset on how we draw maps in the state of Wisconsin and get rid of partisan gerrymandering, period, regardless of whether it would come from Republicans or Democrats. We just want fair maps, maps that actually reflect uh, the people of the state of Wisconsin, which is currently clearly not the case. Wisconsin is a 50-50 state, and it currently has uh, near supermajority status for Republicans in both the Wisconsin State Assembly and State Senate. You can see all sorts of different metrics and studies showing over and over again how deeply gerrymandered Wisconsin is. We've got to figure this out. This Iowa bill that the Republicans have pushed, this not the Iowa bill, rather, that the Republicans put, have pushed is not the answer. So, again, a good thing that they held that public hearing today, a positive step to actually listen to the public on this issue, but ultimately, at the end of the day, this is not the solution. And we're going to be headed to break here, and after the break, we will be joined by Angela Lang of Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, otherwise known as Block. She's going to be talking to us more about a different part of voting rights. Stick with us. This is WTMJ Nights. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I am your guest host today. If you don't know me and my work, I write and publish a weekly opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. I also publish a guest column there from time to time. Uh, and one of those guest columnists uh, is joining us in studio today, and that is Angela Lang, the Executive Director of Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, otherwise known as Block. Angela, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so glad you could be here. Uh, a big week for Block, a big yeah. week for you. Uh, you published a column at the Recombobulation Area. The headline on that one is How Trauma and the Criminal Justice System Create Barriers to D Democracy in Wisconsin. Uh, your group, along with the Center for Popular Democracy, have released a pretty comprehensive new report called Still Not Free When They Come Home. So tell us about this report, what went into it, and, and what you found in, in this very detailed report. I know we could probably talk about that for a long time, but yeah, uh, I'll, I'll keep it wait. brief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you all the cliff notes versions. Um, so one, for those that are unfamiliar with Block, we're a year round civic engagement organization dedicated to empowering and educating specifically the black community. Um, and we are day in and day out. So even when there's not an election, we're still talking to voters. And so we are on doors talking to folks even now. Um, you know, the team was out in the field and a lot of things that we hear, um, we hear that there's a lot of different barriers to democracy more than just the traditional ones that we talk about. The voter suppression about, you know, potentially losing the Midtown early voting location or um, shutting down polling places the way we saw in April of 2020. Um, there are so many other things. I remember knocking on doors and people being excited to vote, but they just couldn't build the time into their day. They worked two jobs, they had childcare issues, and they were on the bus. And ever since then, this conversation personally was in 2014, and I've always had that story stuck out to me of there are other things that are challenging um, and barriers to even participating for our community to show up in democracy. And we felt it was important to talk about some of those things, too. Mm -hmm. It's not just registering to vote. It's not right. just remembering, you know, when every special election uh, is. It's it's that year round engagement and getting mm -hmm. people to to participate in the process. And I think it's it's so excellent that you and your group are continuing to do that uh, in a year round way. And and I think this this report, you know, 
Actually, you mentioned the the example there that you shared in the column uh, about going to a door and saying that, you know, realizing that voter suppression doesn't always it it can be it can manifest itself in very different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so, t- so maybe you could share a little bit more about that story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about our own team of ambassadors, um, some of which actually were the researchers of this report and some of the challenges that they have. And they do this work day in and day out. Right. Um, there are times they're like, oh, I lost my ID. I didn't get a chance to go to the DMV because I'm working or I have to pick up my kid. And so all of these other challenges that people are experiencing, we wanted to shed a light on that. And it was very personal for us. And then also specifically how that relates to mass incarceration. You know, we are home to one of the most incarcerated zip codes, 53206, that is predominantly black. And if you lock up enough black voters, guess what? You're also simultaneously taking away their ability to vote. And then when folks are released, are finally being able to have their voting rights restored again, sometimes people don't know that. They're like, oh, I've been off paper or off supervision and my voting rights have been restored, but I didn't know until one of our team members knocks on the door. And so understanding that when you are a returning citizen coming home, trying to rebuild your life, all of those challenges, safe, affordable housing, economic opportunities, all of those things. If your basic needs aren't being met, it is incredibly hard for you to fully participate in democracy. And we wanted to connect those dots. Yeah, it's an incredibly important report. I would encourage all of you to go check it out. Uh, Still not free when they come home. A community report on how Wisconsin's criminal legal system harms democracy and the black community on Milwaukee's north side. You are engaging with these voters all the time uh, through your work at Block, and we are coming up against a commercial right now. Uh, So after the break, we are going to have a little bit more of an opportunity to really dig into that. So stick with us and WTMJ Nights and our guest, Angela Lang. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I am your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I am the writer and publisher of the online publication and weekly opinion column called The Recombobulation Area. Do check us out, News. We've got columns from myself this week, from Phil Rocco, who's a Marquette professor, who's going to be joining us later in the show uh, and also a column from our guest here, Angela Lang, uh, the executive director of Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. Also, just want to remind our listeners this evening uh, that we will be carrying President Biden's Oval Office address live uh, that is scheduled to begin just after 7 p.m. this evening. Uh, so stick with us. We will be carrying the president's speech live. Uh, And just to get back to our guest here, Angela Lang uh, from Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, we were talking about the new report that your group and the Center for Popular Democracy released. It's really, you know, kind of on the intersection of the criminal justice system and voting rights. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're, we're not we're in like a rare moment right now in Wisconsin where there is not an election weeks away. There's it's there's like basically one month out of the year where we don't have an election where no one is is campaigning um you know aggressively at least we've got a spring (laughs) election coming up next year we've got a a, you know obviously presidential election next year so there is going to be a lot of conversations you know about voting rights uh you know in particular with this election uh it's always a big topic in the state of wisconsin and this report is really comprehensive and not only uh does it really bring to light a lot of really important voting rights issues. It makes suggestions for solutions for that as well. So what, 
maybe you could break down a couple of these for me. What are what are some of the things that really stood out to you from this report? And what do you what would you like to see people take away from it? Yeah, I'll say that when I was reading the first draft of it, I had to put it down several times um, because it felt very emotional and very, you know, people are telling these really traumatic stories of what it means to come back and be with their families, not being able to provide. If you're like the man of the house, right, you're not being able to provide for your family. What does that look like? Your your distance from loved ones. If you were incarcerated in the beginning of the pandemic, you may not have been able to physically see them because they weren't doing visits. Um, you know, people were talking about the lockdowns and, and being uh, locked down 23 out of 24 hours a day, um, being, you know, short staffed. Some of the uh, eye care packages are becoming increasingly expensive when loved ones are trying to support folks and put money on their books, so to speak, is becoming more and more expensive. Um, we're hearing a lot, too, about um, the phone calls being incredibly expensive. So you're you're kind of being cut off. From the world. And, um, you know, I remember back in, I believe it was 2014, um, there were all these billboards on the north side of Milwaukee that literally had handcuffs that said voter fraud is a felony. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they make a really big deal to tell you, you are, you know, a felon and you cannot vote. But when you are off supervision or what we call off paper, your voting rights are restored. But those scare tactics, people are like, well, I don't I don't know if I should be voting or, or you know what? I'm not even going to dig into it. I don't want to get in trouble. I need to figure out how to rebuild my life. And so for us, it was really important not to just like tell the stories of the folks that were incarcerated, but also folks of like family members and loved ones and the tra the trauma that impacts them. If we're carrying all this trauma day in and day out, there isn't always that space to be able to fight for our voting rights because let's be honest we still have to continue to fight for it and if you're fighting in your daily life to survive that's not always on your radar and i think there's this assumption that if black voters aren't turning out oh we're apathetic oh we don't care but we wanted to um have a, a stark contrast and so i i want to give like an incredible shout out to our deputy director keisha robinson who uh, led our team of ambassadors to do this, to help them become experts, to tell their own stories and to conduct um, dozens and dozens of interviews to be able to compile this report. And we didn't want to just tell those stories. They, we have these recommendations which are listed in the report and there's policy uh, touch points as well. Mm -hmm. I encourage all of you to, to go check that out again. It was from Block and the Center for Popular Democracy. The report is called Still Not Free, When They Come Home. You could read Angela's column on this at the Recombobulation Area, how trauma and the criminal justice system create barriers to democracy in Wisconsin. And I think it's interesting. You mentioned that billboard uh, mm -hmm. from from a number of years ago and and just the way that, you know, voting rights work for when people have served their sentence and have, are coming back to uh, their communities. And I think people need to remember that these are different laws from state to state yeah. from felon reenfranchisement when it comes to voting um you know it can be a different law in wisconsin and minnesota and iowa i think there's all every state has a different approach to this and so really digging into the details of how that impacts people in wisconsin there can be so much confusion about that and so much misinformation mm -hmm. and i think a, you know a really exhaustive detailed report like this can really shine a light on what those barriers can be mm -hmm. for people um you know is, is there anything you're hoping that like if if you were 
uh, sitting here with with a state lawmaker right mm-hmm. now. What what would you encourage them to take from this report? One, all of the policy recommendations, right? Um, you know, even thinking about supporting folks with mental health challenges that are incarcerated. What does that look like? Being able to make sure that. Um, people are actually being rehabilitated, not just thrown away. But I think the biggest thing, you know, we could talk policy day in and day out. But the biggest thing is that we want folks to to have a full picture of what it takes to actually show up and vote in our communities. Right. It's like I said, we're dealing with voter suppression attacks day in and day out. And then there's that constant trauma. And we always get the question of, you know, hey, this ward, you know, had lower voter turnout or this neighborhood had, had lower voter turnout. What happened? And so, yeah, we can talk about the traditional voter suppression, which I think we talk about, but we forget those things when we see the numbers come back. People don't understand all of what people are carrying. There are times people are so well-intended, so excited to vote, and they're saying, oh, you know, I couldn't get a babysitter or I had to pick up an extra shift. These are life challenges. If people had access to a livable wage, for example, maybe the woman that I spoke to that I mentioned in the column, uh, she wouldn't have had to work two jobs that day and she would have been able to vote. Um, you know, being able to have uh, uh, accessible childcare, transportation, safe, affordable housing. If you don't even know where you're going to lay your head at the end of the day, you're not thinking about registering to vote. And let's be honest, if you are homeless, there is an extra challenge of how you even register to vote. And so I think some of these more structural challenges aren't always being talked about um, in terms of voter suppression. So for us, we think that democracy includes things like health care housing, economic justice, mental health, because if those needs are met, then there is more space for people to actually show up. And then people can get involved in the process and have their say. And then once they have that more stable infrastructure around them, they can be a part of the process and start looking forward to making some of that positive change and making a difference for for Northside communities in Milwaukee. It's a cycle, right? Yeah. It's like um, if you are in kind of like the cycle of poverty, right, and, and all that it entails, it's hard to get out of it. And you can't vote your way out of it because there's all these structures in place that prevent you from voting. Right. And so you're you're dealing with all of these issues and all these challenges, but you're actually not able to participate in democracy that would actually make your life better. Right. Like and so we're dealing with all these things and then yet we're not even able to have our voices heard, unfortunately, to even change the conditions that we're dealing with. We're talking with Angela Lang, the executive director of Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, and the report uh, that that Block and the uh, in the Center for Popular Democracy produced earlier this week. Still not free when they come home. Uh, community report on how Wisconsin's criminal legal system harms democracy and the Black community on Milwaukee's North Side. You can read Angela's column on that at the Recombobulation area. And I wanted to I wanted to talk about one example of voter suppression that you mentioned in that column that has been in the news uh, over the past few weeks, and that is in regards to the Midtown polling place. And so, we, you know, you talked about these barriers to democracy, uh, and you know, people maybe not being able to make it to the ballot box on on election day. Uh, you know, the Midtown polling place has offered a lot of uh, op- opportunities for early voting for mm-hmm. for you know absentee voting. Uh, and now that is at risk of being closed down. So, so what's happening there, and and what have you, um, what have you been hearing from people on that? Yeah. Um. So unfortunately, there's you know issues with the new owners of the space and and jacking up the rent and and basically pricing people out or offering a smaller space. Um. If folks have been to that space, it, it's a big space, but it's also mm-hmm. a big space by design and by necessity. 
Um, we choose as a team to always early vote together. We think it's a powerful statement when you see 40, 50 plus black people all voting together. Um, and we make sure we, we do it together. It's kind of like a family thing that we do. And so we've been doing that the last you know few years. And when I put the article in the group chat, the ambassador group chat, they were like, they're trying to take everything from us is what one of the ambassadors said. Um, and it was it was it's again, deeply personal. We held um, events there even in the pandemic when we had to get creative. We had um, a, a Halloween party in the parking lot at the other end. We had food trucks. We had DJs. We had free costumes for kids. It was a good time. And people were like, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, by the way, go vote, you know, right over there. Or people were walking out voting. Hey, let's celebrate that you voted. And so it's also kind of a community space. Right. And in terms of voting, people go there every single time we go there. It's always the same poll workers. They always get excited to see us. It's always the same woman that happens to take my my ballot every single time. And she's always grateful to see us and to see um, such a, a crucial polling place on the north side of Milwaukee. And let's be honest, when we say north side, we're talking predominantly black. Black folks, um, this is under attack and and people um, rely on it. People are like, I'm used to being there. This this is built into my voting plan. I have voted at Midtown for the last several election cycles as early voting. And um, I think every single time I think we've seen this since the pandemic, these subtle, small rules changes. Mm-hmm. You know, you show up. It's, it's a disruptive. It's a disruption to your your voting routine. There's a lot of folks, especially elder black folks that have a plan every single time they and their plan doesn't change. They're the first one in line. They, they get up at this time and then they go there and they do this. And then when you start to change some of these things, it becomes incredibly difficult to, to keep up sometimes. And sometimes they're small. And, you know, I'm not even sure if everybody in our community knows that this is happening. And so for us, we're getting the word out. Every single person that we talk to um, kind of rolls their eyes and sees this as kind of like a personal attack on the black community, given that is predominantly the most folks that utilize that space. Yeah, hopefully something can be done to keep that open as a polling place, because as you mentioned, it's, it's you know, voting is is a community action. It's yeah. a, it's it's part of um you know, it, it's it's very personal. It's it's a it's an important thing, and it, it I think people you know can can be be very routine oriented and yeah. can want to <laughs> you know have that stability of knowing that the polling place is going to be there. You shared another example, you know, in your column after the redistricting process uh, that that moved some people to a new polling place. Yeah. People don't aren't if you're not dialed into the news cycle the way some of us nerds are, <laughs> uh, and I count myself among Same. that group. Uh, you might not know that the Midtown polling place is at risk. You might not know that ballot drop boxes are being outlawed by the by the conservative majority in the wisconsin supreme court Mm -hmm. you might not know that you know all of these different changes so uh you know it's a really important issue and i and i hope that there is a a resolution there as well uh angela lang from black leaders organizing for communities thank you so much for joining us on wtmj nights and i encourage everyone to go check out that report thank you now more of wtmj nights Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. You were just listening to President Joe Biden address the nation from the Oval Office amid the Israel-Hamas war, uh, reiterating his support for Israel. Uh, Also spoke quite a bit about the situation in Ukraine as well. Uh, Talked about... uh, talked about a number of issues but talked about how hamas and putin in common are, are both complete, looking to completely annihilate a democracy and i think that is one of those uh one of those comments that uh, is going to 
um, be part of the news here after President Biden, President Biden's address to the nation. Uh, if you have thoughts on that speech, feel free to let us know. Old National Bank Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. Again, President Biden just addressed the nation uh, in the tweet that his, the presidential account sent out. He said, the terror and tyranny of Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. So I think a very important address from the president tonight, from the Oval Office. Uh, obviously a very harrowing time across the world in Israel, in Ukraine, in response to some devastating terrorist attacks from Hamas and the war that has broken out in the Middle East after those. Um, difficult time for the world. Uh, pres- the president addressing the nation from the Oval Office this evening. Uh, it, you know, some of the news to come from that, he's, he's again reiterating his support to uh, send a package to Congress uh, to, to support the security in Israel, support security in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, Congress has, been, has had its own news cycle today. Uh, where they, Republicans in Congress are still looking to uh, elect a Speaker of the House. And so challenging news across the world. Uh, hopefully we can find a way for people to come together to find a solution to continue to come together to, to find a path to peace, uh, to find a path to secure and lasting peace for Israel, for Ukraine, for so many places across the world that are struggling to to deal with these types of attacks. Obviously, what happened in Israel uh, was was a despicable terrorist attack from Hamas, uh, and and the war that has broken out in the region is is so deeply troubling in so many ways. Um, and I think the, the the address from the president tonight, you know, seeking to not only address what happened in Israel, but but tying it to what happened in Ukraine as well. Uh, you know, lending his support for for democracies you know, around the world. Uh, and now I, I will, I'm not going to say that I am a foreign policy expert here. I mostly write about state and local issues. Uh, but you, of course, can't help but ignore uh, major events that are happening like this. And, and it's I, you know, as a parent myself, uh, I always think of I think of the children who are caught up in this and, and what that what these difficult situations can can bring to them can bring to children who might not understand what's happening who might not who, who are just who are just trying to live their lives and who are just caught up in this and and i just um i just think you know hopefully that the president's remarks to my tonight pointing towards peace pointing towards you know in, in israel in particular he said he can we cannot give up on a two-state solution and the path to lasting peace in the region. Um, and I think those those are some important comments from the president this evening. Again, my name is Dan Schaefer. I'm your guest host here on WTMJ Nights. Uh, we're going to have more uh, throughout the show this evening. Uh, I'm going to be with you until through the 8 o'clock hour. In the 8 o'clock hour, I'll be joined by Marquette professor Phil Rocco. He's going to talk to me a little bit about the Brewer Stadium deal. Uh, later that hour, I'll be joined by Justin Garcia, 
Uh, we're going to talk a little Milwaukee Bucks. Anybody who follows me, uh, follows me in my work knows that I'm a big Milwaukee Bucks fan. So, you know, a little, little, little something lighter, uh, after that speech from the president this evening. Uh, and right now we are going to, um, we are going to be headed to commercial. Again, this is Dan Schaefer. I'm your guest host on WTMJ Nights. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. If you're unfamiliar with me and my work, I write and publish a weekly online opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. Yes, it is named after the famous post-security space at the Milwaukee airport. You know, we have a very discombobulating news cycle in, in the state of Wisconsin and city of Milwaukee. And what I like to provide in my column is, is a little bit of recombobulation. We like to really get into the issues, really look at in-depth issues uh, at the recombobulation area. Uh, so do check us out. You can find my work at the recombobulation area dot news. Again, my name is Dan Schaefer. If you're unfamiliar with me and my work, I write and publish the recombobulation area. I've been a journalist here in the city of Milwaukee for more than a decade. Uh, you also may have heard me in my weekly segment where I join Steve Scafidi and Sandy Max on WTMJ Now. You can hear me every Tuesday there uh, at 9.30 where I discuss a number of issues with, uh, with the folks over there. Uh, and... Now, before the end of the hour here, I wanted to uh, open up the open up the listener talk and text line, the old National Bank talk and text line eight five five six one six one six twenty. There is a public input meeting tonight uh, happening at the Mitchell Park Domes, and this is one of those topics that will pop up every now and again. Uh, as what what are we going to do with the future of the Mitchell Park Domes, and you know, a, a number of years ago when I was at the Milwaukee Business Journal, I wrote a story about a study assessing the future of the Milwaukee, of the Mitchell Park domes. What, what type of funding would be required to fix up the domes or reinvent the domes or whatever it might be? Well, that story that I wrote was in 2016. We're now in 2023. Uh, we're having much the same issues right now. Uh, there has not really been... A conclusion on on the future of the domes. Uh, so there was a public input meeting tonight uh, over at the domes. Uh, hopefully, I, I understand. You know, if you'd been listening to long to the news as well, there was a sounds like there was an awful tragic incident that happened outside of it. Uh, hopefully, that did not impact anything going on. The conversation that was be, being had there. Thoughts are with the victims uh, of that incident as well. Uh, but this was the the long-awaited report on the future of the Mitchell Park Domes arrived uh, in September, and the Milwaukee County Board oversees the domes through by way of the county parks. Uh, a number of the options, the alternatives for the domes, when they were presented to the County Board's Parks and Culture Committee, they were met with kind of some alarm. Some some dire reactions from a number of the county board members uh, on that report because they the the numbers for what it would cost to repair or restore or build something new at the domes were far greater than I think what some of the folks on that committee expected, and so the alternatives ranged from demolishing the domes entirely to repairing all three domes to restoring all three domes to restoring one dome and building a new event center and conservancy. Uh, 
so I think that is, you know, an important conversation that's going to be had. They w- we want to get to a conclusion with this because they've been kicking the can down the road over and over and over again for what can be done with the future of the Mitchell Park domes. And so if you have thoughts on the domes, on what their future could be, uh, we are taking your calls, taking your texts on the old National Bank talk and text line 855 616 one six twenty. So I'll break down a couple of the numbers here for you as well. Uh, the first alternative was to demolish the domes with defined limits. The construction cost for that would be four point eight million dollars. The project feasibility total estimate uh, six point four million dollars. So that is demolishing the domes. Obviously, is going to be by far the cheapest option. Second option: repairing all three domes. Construction cost twenty one point seven million. Total cost twenty one. million. Next one is restoring all three domes and common areas. Construction costs 67 million. Total project costs 91 million. So that is by far the most expensive, the restoring all three domes and common areas. So that is the most involved of all of the three options or all of the four options. And the the fourth option kind of took a little bit of different, uh, a different approach, different approach. So that was restoring one of the domes, and then building a new conservatory uh, in conjunction with some of the newer developments that they had there. They, they added the greenhouse, you know, at the domes uh, much more recently than the, than the three uh, than the three domes that were built in the 1960s. Uh, so they've been, you know, those domes have been in varying states of disrepair, uh, dating back to 2015 uh, when the county installed installed some wire mesh netting. Uh, they were at the time they were thinking about, hey, what should we do with the future of the domes? Had this report, had these options, didn't end up doing anything with it. Kicked the can down the road. Here we are now again uh, in 2023. What are we going to do with the domes? What what's the answer here? What what is going to be the future uh, of the Mitchell Park domes? And so, if you have thoughts on that, feel free to reach out on the old National Bank talk and text line eight five five six one six one six twenty. You can also tweet at me. I'm pretty active on Twitter or X uh, at Dan Schaefer. That's S H A F E R. And we are going to be headed to commercial right about now. So after the commercial, after the break there, we will be taking your calls. Share your thoughts with us on the future of the Mitchell Park Domes. We'll be right back on WTMJ Nights. The night is still young. More of WTMJ Nights coming up next. If you can't get a good night's sleep, let me ask you, are you breathing well? Because if you're snoring or waking up each night with a stuffed up nose or frustrated with your CPAP mask, The root of your sleep problem lies in your breathing triangle. And if any one of those passages isn't working, you won't sleep well. And there's no mattress, pill, or other gimmick that can fix that. I'm Dr. Madan Kandula. A recipe for a good night's sleep starts with an open airway. Now, there are devices that can help solve snoring or sleep apnea problems. If you walk into a sleep center, know you'll walk out with a CPAP. And you might find other options elsewhere. But the simple truth is, if your nose doesn't work properly, no device will help. Only at Advent will you find every effective snoring and sleep apnea solution, along with a world-class team that can get your nose working properly again. Go to AdventNose.com to schedule your appointment, because Advent knows when you breathe well, you live better. AdventNose.com 
Old National Bank. I just got your home equity loan, and this feeling of, like, joy and exhilaration overcame me. Yeah, it's a phenomenon we call getting old. Wow, so I'm not the only one? No, small business owners feel it with expansion loans. Families feel it when they're setting up trusts and 529s, nonprofits who need financing to help the community, and anyone who needs investment advice. They all feel it. So it's not just me? No, you're in a pretty big club. Like a club I can join? I really don't. Is there at least a secret handshake? Old National Bank, where relationships and results matter. Old National. Get old. Member FDIC. Hey, Sandy Max of WTMJ here. I've been telling you all summer about my friends at Three Pillars. They are Wisconsin's top-rated continuing care retirement community, and they're located in a gorgeous nature-filled spot in the village of Dousman, smack dab in the middle of Lake Country. Continuing care means every facet, independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing, and rehab. That means whatever you need, Three Pillars is the best, and you deserve the best in your retirement. Learn more at Three Pillars. Sighting Unlimited. Named the best window installers, not just here, but in the whole USA. Get the best. Sighting Unlimited. Three-time winner as America's best window installer. For windows, you call Sighting Unlimited first and directly. SightingUnlimited.com. When traveling at 20 miles per hour, the average stopping distance is about 40 feet. That stopping power is calculated in both thinking and braking distance. And assuming you've got the thinking and braking part down, the only thing left is good tires. Just Google Rich Lawns to schedule an appointment at any of our five convenient locations. And rest assured, we'll put you in the right tire no matter what sort of vehicle you drive. Plus, every tire purchase that we install automatically comes with our free flat tire protection plan. Five conveniently located facilities, all AAA approved. And all staffed by ASC certified technicians ready to install your tires. So Google Richlands. Or go to richlands.com. And remember to be safe, buckle up, and hey, always make sure you have good tread on your tires. I'm Brett Matchke with Richlands, your do for tire service. Since 1964, we've changed your tires and so much more. Richlands Tire and Service, such a refreshing change. Richlands. This is WTMJ Nights. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, just to look ahead of what we have planned for the rest of the show this evening, I'm going to be sticking with you through the 8 o'clock hour as well, and at the 8 o'clock hour we'll be joined by Marquette University professor Phil Rocco, who is uh, going to be talking us talking with us a little bit about the Brewers stadium deal. Uh, he wrote a column at the Recombobulation Area about that topic. I wrote a column at the Recombobulation Area about that topic. The bill passed after each of us, uh, bill passed in the Assembly after each of us wrote our respective columns. So so there's a lot to discuss there as well. Uh, and also at 8.30, we're going to be joined by Justin Garcia, who you hear often here on WTMJ talking about the Milwaukee Bucks. As anyone who follows me on Twitter or talks to me or sees me wearing any kind of a T-shirt will tell you I'm a huge fan of the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, so much to discuss there as well. The surprise, uh, the surprise resignation of assistant coach Terry Stotts, who I was actually kind of excited to see on the sidelines with the Milwaukee Bucks. Former assistant long time ago uh, with the Bucks had been the head coach of the Portland Trailblazers for quite some time uh, with Damian Lillard, so it seemed like a natural fit. So we'll talk to Justin uh, about what the fallout from that decision might be. Uh, but before the break, we were talking a little bit about the future of the Mitchell Park 
Domes. Now, there is an event tonight happening at the Mitchell Park Domes to discuss the future of that facility. You know, the, the county has over and over again tried to find a long-term solution for the domes. Uh, you know, they tried in 2016 to find something. There are a whole bunch of different work groups and ideas that didn't really come to fruition with anything. And now we're back talking about this much the same issue here in 2023. And there was a report that was presented to the Milwaukee County Board last month. Uh, and some of the some of the numbers there were, were pretty high. And as, as anybody who's been following the news cycle in the state of Wisconsin this year knows, local funding has been not exactly to the levels that it always was. We needed the, the, to pass the uh, Act 12, which was the shared revenue and local sales tax bill that helped bring Milwaukee County and the city of Milwaukee back from the brink of potential bankruptcy. And so the county parks budget is is a big part of that because there are a number of things that the county is responsible for. The way the government works in Wisconsin, it's kind of the counties are the arm of the state government. So the county is kind of part of the state government, and they, they have to carry out a certain level of services required by state law. And... One of those things that the county carries out that is not required by state law is the parks department. And the parks department's budget in, in the, in Milwaukee County has been basically flat for 30 plus years. The budget is roughly the same now as it was in the late 1980s. Obviously with inflation, much, really nothing costs the same as it does now in the late, as it did in the late 1980s. Uh, there are about 1,000 fewer parks workers employed now than there were 30 years ago. The Parks Department is facing the deferred maintenance backlog of around $500 million. And so when the report was presented to the Milwaukee County Board, uh, giving a range of options for what could be done with the Mitchell Park Domes, you know, there was one option to demolish the domes entirely. That was the cheapest one. The cost of that would be about $6.5 million. The other ones were well into the tens of millions of dollars for repairing the domes, restoring the domes, or restoring one dome and kind of taking a creative approach to some of the other space there. So interested to see what you think about the future of the domes. Should Milwaukee pay the tens of millions of dollars required to restore the domes, to repair the domes, whatever it might be, and what type of investment should Milwaukee be making in this type of facility? Obviously, it, it is beloved by many. You know, I, I'm somebody who I like to go to the domes in the winter. I like to go uh, to the tropical dome in particular when it is among the coldest times of the year. Uh, I like to take my kids there. My, I, have, I have two young daughters. They both love going to the domes, ask for it all the time, point it out when we drive by it on the road. But at one point, are we going to have a conversation about its future? It can't keep going. We can't keep kicking the can down the road uh, on the future of the Dome. So interested to see what you think on this as well. Old National Bank, talk and text line 855-616-1620. We're talking about the future of the Mitchell Park Domes. We had one text here saying, I can't imagine losing this from Peter. I can't imagine losing the domes, but it seems as if few people want the necessary tax money to be spent to save them. I think we need some very creative financing as a public-private partnership. You know, that's an interesting approach, too. There could be some some private dollars that could come in and potentially offer a path to the future. You know, it's interesting. We're having this conversation about the future of the domes. We're also having a conversation about the future of the uh, of American Family Field. 
a much bigger price tag, of course, for what's happening in American Family Field. The state assembly just passed a bill committing five hundred and forty more than five hundred and forty five million dollars for American Family Field. Is some a state solution a possibility here for the Mitchell Park domes? You know, some of these costs. Uh, let's say let's say the the middle of the three options to keep the domes uh the middle of the three options is the alternative to restore one dome in this case they, they're saying it would be the tropical dome and then build a new conservancy and event center and a new entry courtyard uh that option would be about 65 million dollars if if that's the middle ground I mean, that's a lot of money. The, the Milwaukee County Parks doesn't have that kind of money. So, what's the what's the solution here? We've got a we've got a call coming in, and we will uh, take your call here. Hi, Marla, you're on the air. WTMJ Nights. Thank you for joining us. Do you have Hi. some thoughts on the Mitchell Park Domes? Uh, yeah, my thoughts are I, I really think that we should invest in these types of projects. That- I see it's kind of like an investment in the future of the city. And more broadly, like, I'm wondering how we get out of this, like, just cycles of austerity in our, in our, in our local government. Um, thanks for hang up and listen. Yeah, thanks for the call. I think, you know, the it, it, it always is frustrating when the news cycle delivers something where it's more along the lines of, you know, we're about to fall off the cliff. These things are coming into disrepair. At what point are we going to turn the dial and actually make some investments in the future of our city instead of, you know, trying to keep the lights on? What are we going to do to, to really, truly invest in these public assets that we have? And I think, you know, that's a question that we can ask for the domes. That's what we can ask for a question for a whole variety of things uh, that we have in the city of Milwaukee right now. Um, we are going to be headed to a commercial next. So if you have thoughts on the future of the domes, send us a text. Give us a call on the old National Bank talk and text line, 855-616-1620. This is WTMJ Nights. Stick with us. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I am the writer and the publisher of the online opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. Yes, that is named after the famous post-security area at the Milwaukee Airport. We have a discombobulating news cycle often in the state of Wisconsin, so we try to recombobulate the best we can at the recombobulation area. If you're interested in learning more about the work that we do, you can find us over at the recombobulation area.news, and you can become a we are a subscription based publication. Uh, most of the most of the work that we put out is available for free, uh, but we do also. We are powered by paid subscribers. So if you are interested uh, in subscribing to our growing local publication that covers news and politics in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, do check us out. Uh, Earlier in the show, we had uh, a guest, Angela Lang, from Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. She has a column at the Recombobulation Era right now about uh, voting rights and the criminal justice system. encourage you to check that one out. Uh, We also have... Uh, a column both from myself and from Marquette University Professor Phil Rocco. We each wrote pieces on the Brewers Stadium deal, and Phil is going to be joining us uh, during early in the 8 o'clock hour uh, to discuss his piece, to discuss my piece, uh, and discuss this, this very important and very expensive deal uh, facing Milwaukee, or facing the, uh, the bill coming before the state government right now. 
and before the break, we were talking a little bit about the Mitchell Park Domes. The future of the domes uh, was the topic of a public input meeting tonight uh, at the uh, at the famous facility in Milwaukee. And curious your thoughts on the future of the domes as well, because this is something that is, is one one of those places that you know we don't we have not seemed to be able to find a real solution for the long-term future of the domes. And there was a, you know, a, a report that I referenced before uh, that you know, laid out a number of potential options, costs ranging from $6 million to tear it down uh, to $91 million at the high end of restoring and repairing them as well. Um, so curious your thoughts as well on the future of the Mitchell Park domes. Uh, you can call at the Old National Bank talk and text line 855-616-1620. Again, that's 855-616-1620 for the talk and text line. You know, I I am a big fan of Milwaukee County Parks in general, and I and it saddens me to see the level of investment that we've been able to put there. And I think it is, you know, in so many ways not the fault of the county because they are not necessarily able to they've been so constrained in so many ways over the years in their budget and have, that has led to having to cut over and over again cut cut the parks fu- funding you know I, I as i mentioned you know where there's about a thousand fewer employees at the at the Milwaukee County Parks than there were 30 years ago the budget is roughly the same that it was 30 years ago obviously with inflation that that essentially means that the budget has been cut significantly over that time uh, so you would love to see so much more investment, you know, and, and I think we're going to see sort of the beginning of that next year in the county budget. You know, David Crowley, County Executive David Crowley presented his county budget, uh, you know, later la- last year. It is, uh, you know, starting to invest more, but is not going to reach the level of investment uh, that would, you know, give $90 million to restore the Mitchell Park Dome. So curious your thoughts on that. Send us a text. Uh, give us a call, 855-616-1620. And right now, we are going going over to the WTMJ. Oh, I'm sorry. We are going to break right now. Uh, so stick with us. My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm your guest host this evening on WTMJ Nights. This is WTMJ Nights. And now here's your host, Dan Schaefer. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. Yes, I am your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Dan Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us today for WTMJ Nights. Uh, we are going to be joined by a guest coming up here uh, for the uh, during the eight o'clock hour. We're going to be talking about the Brewer Stadium deal, and we're going to be talking about the Milwaukee Bucks later in the hour. So, if you have thoughts on any of the topics we are discussing today, give us a call, shoot us a text, 855-616-1620. Again, that's the old National Bank talk and text line, 855-616-1620. And our first guest of the 8 o'clock hour is going is going to be Phil Rocco of Marquette University. Phil is uh, a regular contributor to the Recombobulation Area, the, published I write, the, the publication I write and edit. His latest piece is called The Distorted Economic Promise of the Brewers Stadium Deal. Phil. Thank you for joining us for WTMJ Nights. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so 
you wrote a fascinating piece for us at the Recombobulation Area this week, and I want to get into a little bit of the details of it here, but give us the big picture of, of what you had to say about this deal and about you know some of these studies that uh, th- th- that go into you know the type of economic impact that the brewers might have. Tell, tell us about what you had to say here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the big gist of the piece is that the the whole set of uh, information that we have to make decisions about things like the Brewer Stadium is really kind of distorted, and it ends up meaning that when we talk about these uh, huge public investments, that we're not necessarily asking the right uh, questions, and we're not asking the right questions because. Um, most of the information that we use to, to make sense of how these things work comes from uh, the, the franchise itself or the kind of booster committee that is, you know, pushing for, uh, you know, the, the stadium deal. And when you look at the, the academic literature, there's, you know, just a mountain of studies uh, from economists on the, you know, effects of, um, stadium deals on, on local economies that basically finds in study after study after study using measure after measure after measure um, that the economic effects of these things are awash. Now, the commission studies by uh, organizations like MMAC, uh, the Area Chamber of Commerce, um, don't find that. And the, answer, the reason why is that those commission studies don't do something that is basically like a best practice among economists which is taking into consideration the uh, crowd-out effects of the investment. In other words, uh, not taking into consideration what would happen if you didn't make that investment, how, how the economy uh, would change. And when you take that into consideration and you don't use some of these cockamamie um, uh, regional input-output models like they have in the MX study, you find that the, the economic effects of these things, they don't look like the huge boon that we're told that they are. Um, and so it often leads us to think about, you know, the effects of these uh, huge, huge public investments just in terms of economic development, when in reality, you know, the, probably the most significant economic dynamic that these things uh, create is redistribution, redistribution from um, taxpayers to a franchise that's now valued at $1.6 billion. We're talking with Phil Rocco of Marquette University. We're talking about uh, the way in which some of these studies that are commissioned by uh, commissioned by folks who back stadium deals often support stadium deals, uh, and how some of the academic research and some of the economics behind it don't always say the same thing. And so, one of the interesting, you know, kind of factors that you brought up there when you're you're discussing this was the fact that it doesn't always account for. Uh, you know, other avenues for economic development. So, like, th- this study will, con- commissioned by the MMAC, the, the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce, I commissioned this study in 2020, and it said that, you know, the brewers generate X number of, you know, I think it was $2.5 billion in economic output. And so a lot of people are saying, oh, it's horrible to lose $2.5 billion in economic output. We obviously need to do this deal. But what you are, you're kind of shining a light on here is the fact that it it's not always the whole picture. It doesn't always, it's not just a zero-sum game there. Either you have the $2.5 million in economic impact or you don't. 
Right, because when you don't make those investments, it's not as if the economy kind of stands still. Um, you know, consumers buy other things. Um, it, when you have a huge parcel or set of parcels of land, uh, developers start to think about other uses for that land. And, of course, as you've written about uh, a lot of published on the recombobulation area, there is still this sort of um, proposal in abeyance for this this idea for a you know a beer district uh, around the stadium and things like that, but yeah, there's a lot of foregone um, uh, potential economic activity um, that happens when you build a stadium and especially when you have um, a huge facility that's not in use for for many months um, uh, of the year and. You know, I think that that's the interesting thing is that often what economists say, you know, and again, this isn't, I, I want to emphasize, this isn't like a cherry pick kind of like set of studies. This is like, you know, this series of systematic reviews. They've looked at like every study that's ever been done of the effects of stadiums. They find this. The other big thing that, that uh, the economics literature finds I think is fascinating is that we tend to underestimate the cost of these investments. Typically, when you get the price tag on uh, investments like this, they just sort of tell you how much money the state or local governments are committing, right? What they don't tell you is all of the foregone property tax revenue, as well as the um, uh, assistance with kind of debt financing and, and things like that the governments end up providing. So it ends up the, the sort of cost side of the ledger is usually a lot higher than the price tag uh, that you end up seeing, $546 billion. I mean, you, that's, that's probably, a, you know, that's like the lower bound of the estimate. Absolutely. We're talking to Phil Rocco of Marquette University. We are coming up uh, to a break here, but Phil is going to stick with us for another segment to continue talking about the Brewer Stadium deal. Some of these studies that go into the conversation uh, that often fuel these stadium deals. So if you have thoughts on that as well, uh, we can take them uh, on the old National Bank talking text line 855-616-1620. And we are headed to break now, but stick with us on WTMJ Nights. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm your guest host this evening. Uh, we are joined in the last segment, and he's continuing with us for this segment, uh, Phil Rocco from Marquette University, who recently wrote a piece for the Recombobulation Area, the publish, the, the publication that I write and publish. Uh, the, the piece is called The Distorted Economic Promise of the Brewer's Stadium Deal. I also wrote something uh, about the Brewer's Stadium Deal about uh, the, and you can read that piece also at the Recombobulation Area. It's called The Brewer Stadium Deal and a Complicated Question. So we both wrote these pieces before the, the Assembly uh, passed the bill with pretty overwhelming uh, mm-hmm. bipartisan margins. Uh, what was your impression of you know, that floor session in the Assembly and, and the ultimate vote that was, that was held earlier this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I was not terribly surprised uh, at the... You know that the margins were were large. The Milwaukee dele- delegation was, you know, split on the question. Um, I think that uh, you know there's there's this tension, right, between. Uh, I, I mean, I am not convinced that uh, that members of the state legislature necessarily buy the MMAC line about how um, you know how much of an economic boon this is going to be. But I think that there's a lot of pressure 
um, and uh, on um, uh, on legislators like not to walk out on what they feel like is like a sort of like a last last and best offer. Um, and you know, baseball franchises are ex- extremely good at kind of keeping that pressure uh, on, even though there's there's uh, you know half a decade or more left on the lease. Um, but I think that uh, the the thing that made the bill not surprising that passed in with these marches that it did is it had a couple of um, kind of sweeteners in it. You know, one was this kind of provision that basically reduced the you know sales tax surcharge administrative surcharge not just for like Milwaukee County but for all of the counties I mean it doesn't sound like that much uh, to us just in, in dollar terms it might not seem very significant but it definitely for you know uh, county governments around the, the state that was like one kind of like add-on to the deal that was gonna make it you know like a nice like rider that people didn't want to fail so uh, you know I think that this is sort of like a study in the art of like how you write a law that, that, you know, where there's some tension, it's going to pass. But I mean, we still have to see what happens in the Senate. Um, you know, this is a pretty big package. I think that there'll certainly be some kind of, uh, some hostility to, uh, to it in the Senate. But if, if things continue to break down along, um, the lines in the way that we saw in, in, in the assembly, you know, it, it, it could very well pass. Yeah. It was an interesting vote. You know, you mentioned the the fact that many in Milwaukee were kind of divided on this. So to a certain, yeah. so I I took a look at this in and took it took a look at all how all of the uh, state representatives who represent pieces of Milwaukee County. So obviously, this deal has a number of different pieces to it. There's the state funding portion. There's the county funding portion. There's the city funding portion. So in in across the state, it was an overwhelming bipartisan margin that this passed by. Within Milwaukee County, it was much more split. So you had, uh, I believe it was eight uh, Milwaukee County representatives who voted in favor of the bill and seven Milwaukee County representatives who voted against the bill. So even though it was like, I think it was 60-some to, to 30-some, what, what was the final vote? 69 uh, to 20, 69 to 27. 69 to 27. So obviously an overwhelming bipartisan margin that it, that it passed by. But within Milwaukee County, it was more split. So I think that is that is particularly interesting. And I think one of the pieces of this deal that has you know, perhaps been the most controversial has been that local component because it includes yeah. funding from the city of Milwaukee, from Milwaukee County. And unlike the previous sales tax that funded the con- construction of what was then Miller Park, does not include the flat, full five-county region. So you don't have contributions this time from Ozaki County, from Waukesha County, from Washington County, from Racine County. And, w- and one of the things that I argued in my piece was that there, there are a number of ways that this bill could still improve as it goes to the Senate. Um, I think reducing the overall number from 545 million uh, is is one of those things. But I think as a way to do that, you know, I think you could have a little bit more of a local contribution from some of these surrounding counties. We heard Waukesha County Executive Paul Farrow in a Milwaukee Business Journal event not too long ago say the the Brewers uh, are a benefit to Waukesha County, but Waukesha County is now no longer part of the funding deal. You know, and and I think even the MMAC's own research, even that report that you referenced uh, for that deal, said that the majority of the people who attend games at American Family Field 
are from outside of Milwaukee County. So it stands to reason that there should be some sort of level of support from outside of Milwaukee County. And the next piece of that that I argued in, in my column on this as well that could be improved as this heads to the Senate is that economic development piece right in the immediate footprint of the stadium is something that I've advoca- I and others have advocated for at the recombobulation area, which is the quote-unquote beer district. So basically fostering some sort of level of economic development around the ballpark, like what we see downtown with Pfizer Forum. I think, you know, these stadium deals can be imperfect, but we also have this very recent example in Pfizer Forum of something that has seen some success at least in the initial goings of it so that so i think the city having the option to you know be proactive uh in helping develop the deer district i think that's something that city leaders really want to see with american family field as well and i think it goes back to your point in your column too which is if the mmac and others supporting this deal are saying that the reason for this is the catalytic economic development that this brings well why would they be standing in the way of direct economic development in places in the just right around the stadium. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on you know this quote unquote beer district type of development there? Well, I mean, I think look, I you know a couple things to think about here. Like one is the the bigger financing story that you mentioned there, the, the absence of the five county deal. I mean, you got to rerun the situation. What we've got this lopsided vote in in the assembly. What would the vote have been had there been a five-county deal? You know, I mean, that's that's really – I think that the fact that the financing is so, you know, localized in, in Milwaukee, Milwaukee County, I do think that that actually probably helps to explain why it passed by such, such lopsided margin. <laughs> I mean, you start doing the legislative math with that five-county region, and actually the margins get a lot tighter. Maybe some of those um, Washington County districts, Ozaki <laughs> County district, voting in favor of not having to pay for this anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's somebody else's problem. But the but with the beer district, I mean, to me, I mean, I, I like just personally, my own personal perspective on it, it seems like a no brainer because you've got all of this unused space for, um, you know, so many so many days of the year. What is it like two hundred some odd days? Um, of the year, and it's it's also space that is just, you know, if you think about this in the perspective of land use, um, property tax revenue, it just means that you're you're just letting it's a, it's a really inefficient use of land. However, to me, there's two parts of this equation. One is the the sort of um, the political side of it, right? Which is you know getting the um i mean essentially getting the the brewers on board uh for you know rethinking uh the way that a lot of that that space is used um but the to me the other question is you know do developers have an appetite for this because these these kinds of projects only really work if developers do have an appetite for it and i don't know you probably have paid closer attention to that than i have but the one piece that I read on this in the, in the business journal seemed to suggest that it's like there's there's some mixed um, sort of mixed feelings there, and I, and I guess the question I have is, you know, what do we know about stadium deals in other areas that have like really developed, um, you know, you know some of that um, uh, some of that infrastructure around the stadium? How do they, you know? Was it the case that there were those sort of mixed feelings at the outset and the people eventually came around. And if so, how did that happen? 
right? Like, how did, how did that coalition get built? I mean, I think that's really the kind of big um, – it's, it's a sort of like – it's like a research question, right? It's like it's, it probably wasn't obvious from the outset that the coalition got built. How did it happen? Absolutely. So uh, and Phil Rocco, Marquette University, you can read his piece on the recombobulation area, the distorted prom- – distorted uh, – let's see, I, I, lost the, I lost the headline here. <laughs> <laughs> a very good title if you can't remember <laughs> the distorted economic was, promise uh, of the Brewers stadium deal go. it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to this bill as it heads to the state yeah. senate we'll we'll soon find out you know like i wrote in my piece there's plenty of room to improve this deal as it moves forward so thanks you thank you so much for joining us here phil after the break we are going thanks, to be Justin. joined by justin garcia who's going to talk some bucks with me as well to, as cool. we get to the last half hours of the show so stick with us on wtmj nights Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I write and publish a weekly opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. And for the final half hour of the show here, we are joined from the Bucks Radio Network, Justin Garcia. Justin, thank you so much for joining us in person here today. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, So we are one week away from the start of the regular season for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, there's been a lot of news about the Milwaukee Bucks in the, last, today? in the last few weeks and today uh, with the surprising departure of assistant coach Terry Stotts. What happened? Uh, well, what happened, I think, is still TBD. I mean, I, I don't know how much of uh, Adrian Griffin's media availability you caught today. He said he was caught off guard and um, that Terry Stotts informed Dame Lillard, who he has the relationship with, and I believe Giannis and a few others last night of his decision. Um, so I guess it's it's wait and see uh, what exactly led to this. I mean, there's a couple of things. You don't really want to speculate. He's 65 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been away for two years. So, uh, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, maybe he just realized, I don't know if I want that grind anymore it's also i think probably a bit of an adjustment for a guy that was a head coach for nine years and i know he cut his teeth as an assistant here too mm-hmm. under george carl um but when you're the guy that's wearing the whistle for nine years and then all of a sudden oh so i'm the second one down on the bench like that's an adjustment as well so that may have played into it um i think we all got excited over terry stotts and rightfully so because He's one of the brightest offensive minds in terms of coaches out there, and you look at what uh, he did in Portland with the Trailblazers. I know you have Damian Lillard's a big part of that, but outside of Damian Lillard, there wasn't a ton of talent on those Blazers teams, and they were always seemingly around the top five offensively. So that part of it is going to be a, a big hole to fill for for Griff. That's a defensive guy. Yeah, I was gonna, I was you know going into the season and after they announced the hire of of Terry Stotts uh, after Adrian Griffin was hired. I was excited by that because I was thinking like, okay, you know, this is a championship level team and they're going to be competing well into the playoffs, we hope, right? Uh, and with a, a brand new head coach, I think it made sense to have somebody who had a lot of experience as a head coach, especially kind of counterbalancing the, you know, Adrian Griffin coming in as more of a defensive focused head coach, Terry Stotts. Like you mentioned, he ran top five offense after top five offense in his, what is it, nine years yeah. in Portland with Damian Lillard. In, and then when, you know, when the Bucks made the trade for Lillard, it was like, oh, they've already got stats there. It's going to be an easy transition. We won't have to learn, you know, a wildly different type of offensive system than, than what he was used to. So 
this is a little bit a little bit strange. It's a little bit weird uh, to see your lead assistant uh, all of a sudden disappear. So I was wondering too, just looking through the roster of the Bucks assistant coaching staff. Does this mean once again Joe Prunty <laughs> is is stepping up into a larger role than than what he was initially uh, expected to? I, I guess in the interim that uh, Joe Prunty is going to assume a larger role. Um, Bucks said they're going to take their time and. Um, really do some vetting and, and look for who takes that. But, I mean, it's it's not the most convenient time to be adding to your assistant coaching staff with the season just starting. In some ways, uh, I know there's some differences, but in some ways it does remind you of what a year ago this time when Ime Otoka went from the head coach to out mm. of the Boston Celtics and Joe Mazzula had to take over just as the season was getting ready to start. It's at least not a head coach, but to your point, I think a lot of the, I wouldn't say concerns, but I think you were put more at ease with Adrian Griffin being a first-year head coach with the expectations that this team has because of that entire staff. Like Joe Prunty that you mentioned, who's been a head coach and an interim head coach in this league, and Terry Stotts, two guys that have a lot of experience, and especially the offense that Terry Stotts brings. So that's out the window now. And now we have Adrian Griffin, a first-time head coach, coaching, I don't know, two of the best 15 players in the NBA. I guess to a certain extent with the offensive side of it is like uh, it, the offense became much less complicated yeah. to figure out when, when you're adding Damian Lillard. It's like, okay, just give him the ball, yeah, run well, the pick and roll with Giannis. And I'm sure a lot of it, too, is like, Dame, I, I know Terry Stotts is gone, but you remember a lot of that playbook, <laughs> right? right? Like, can you be the de facto offensive coordinator of this team? Yeah, so I could maybe, I mean, you know, player coach Dame Lillard, I guess, for the player offensive coordinator Dame Lillard. Yeah, it's so it's it's a little bit. I think that side of the ball became a much less complicated once you add Damian Lillard to the mix. I think you know, obviously, Drew Holiday, uh, terrific offensive player in his own right, but not offensively on the same level as Damian Lillard. And I think we've seen some glimpses of of what the offense can look like. The Damian Lillard, Giannis Adetokounmpo pick and roll, uh, which we've seen that a couple times in the preseason so far, and it's generated some open looks to say the least. Um, and I think that is that is the hope with this offense too. I think you know, obviously, Damian Lillard had a pretty different off season probably than what he typically has, uh, and getting ready for a season the, the, in a different way than he typically does uh, with the, with the whole trade demand that was hanging over the whole whole summer. So maybe these first few weeks will be a little bit of a rocky start. Who knows? But at the same time, in the NBA, talent tends to trump all. So what what are you expecting to see? You know, in the in the immediate aftermath of this decision, and as we get into the you know the first weeks of the of the season here. I guess it's still TBD. I, I'm I'm curious uh, who has a larger voice or who takes a larger voice in the offense now with with no Terry Stotts. But you know your point about the offense tends to win out. I mean I, I think that's going to be a big example here. And also, uh, it's funny that uh, after the game in Oklahoma City, Giannis had said, "I I still got a ways to go to get into shape." and I think rather shockingly revealed that he was just cleared to sprint like three weeks ago, which we knew he went through mm-hmm. the surgery in the off season, but to hear like, yeah, it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that I could even sprint. You're like, Oh, okay. That's, that certainly slows down the off season. Um, so hearing him say, yeah, I still got some work to do. He's looked pretty good without that. And, and Damian right. Lillard, Lillard has opened that up. Dame uh, clearly is still working off some rust for those reasons you pointed to. It wasn't exactly a normal off season for him. Um, but if that's what that group looks like, 
as we still got some work to do. It's it's a pretty scary offense, and we haven't seen Chris Middleton yet. So I, I still think this team is is going to be a top three offense in the league is, is, if they can stay healthy. Um, the defense is more of a work in progress, but you know I think we've seen more and more the last couple of years. It used to be you got to have like a top ten or even top five defense to win in the playoffs. That's softened a little. Like the Nuggets mm-hmm. were around fifteen last mm-hmm. year, so. If you're a lead on one end, that goes a long way. That as long as I've always felt like, as long as the Bucks don't slide into the bottom half, you can stay like 10, 12, 13, somewhere around there. I think that's that's going to be more than enough for for what this offense is going to do. You're listening to WTMJ Nights. Uh, our guest for this final half hour of the show is Justin Garcia from the Bucks Radio Network, and we are going to head to break now. But Justin is going to stick with us. So if you have any thoughts on the Bucks, on Terry Stotts, on Damian Lillard, on so many things. Give us a call. Shoot us a text, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. This is WTMJ Nights. Stick with us. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. My name is Dan Schaefer. I've been your guest host for the last three hours. Three hours of live radio. I'm hanging in there. Uh, I'm new to this. But but we're doing we're doing well. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with me and my work, I write and publish an on, uh, weekly opinion column in an online publication called the Recombobulation Area. And just to get a plug in there for for myself here, uh, you can subscribe to the Recombobulation Area. Most of the content we publish on there is available for free. You can become a free subscriber, get those articles, columns, podcasts, all that in your inbox. Uh, and then if you want to pay to support our growing local independent publication, uh, you can become a f- paid subscriber, get started for just $5 a month. $50 for a full year. Now would be a good time to do that because I write about a lot of a lot of political issues, uh, and I think the next year is going to have more than a few of those. Uh, so you are going to want to stay up to date on coverage of redistricting, the Brewer Stadium deal, child care, all sorts of different big issues that we have been covering at the Recombobulation Area. Uh, subscribe to stick with us and support our growing independent media. And as we were joined before the break, we are going to be joined for the rest of the show here today uh, by Justin Garcia of the Bucks Radio Network. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the break about the surprising departure of Terry Stotts that we learned today, but we also got some good, better news today uh, that Chris Middleton is going to be back on the court for the Milwaukee Bucks for the final preseason game later this week against Memphis. Yeah, it was kind of uh, ambiguous, too, <laughs> earlier in the week of, we're going to play him in the preseason. And is that going to be Tuesday? Is that going to be Friday? Is that going to be in the scrimmage? Uh, so it's it's good that we'll get to see him on Friday. Um, I I don't know. Like You, you can uh, say that uh, I'm, I'm a little biased by working for the team, but mm-hmm. I, I've always been in the camp that I'm not concerned until I have to be concerned with Chris. I understand um, a lot of the hesitation and... Concern for Bucks fans after what we went through last year, but um, to me, my concern level with Chris dealing with this and working his way back in, it's a lot different now than it would have been had the Bucks not made a trade for Damian Lillard. Because if it's still the same group, again, you feel good about the defense and everything that Drew Holiday can impact there, and we've seen Drew shoulder a lot of the offensive load in the regular season. But if there's any of those questions going into the playoffs, it's just as we've seen a tough ask. So now with Dame in place, 
the questions you you do have on defense, you don't have it offensively. And for Chris, you know, the interview that he did with our pal Eric in the Athletic too, with with uh, Giannis there with him, <laughs> um, you know, Chris has joked about it too his entire time here in Milwaukee that he's fine with whatever the role is, and and that's one of the things that I would always point out whenever we would get into the perceived value discussion over Chris Middleton um, is look, I get that a portion of the fan base doesn't like Chris Middleton or they think player X or Y or Z is a better player, but go get that player, bring them in in a contract year and tell them, okay, you're going to get X amount of shots a game because it's all going through that guy. So Giannis is the one that's going to run everything. You can just sit in the corner or you can do this. And some nights you'll pop some nights. It's just Giannis's show, or it's Drew, or it's somebody else. Chris has never had a problem with accepting the role and being that guy. And he even said, look, with, with Dame in place, it makes it even easier for me. Like, we've seen that two-man game in the preseason. We haven't seen it with Chris, that all of a sudden, if you do find a way to stop Giannis rolling, Chris is the guy in the corner. Yeah, I've always been. I've been always been a very pro Chris Middleton uh, on the spectrum of Bucks fans and their views on Chris Middleton. I've been uh, Team Chris all the way, and you know this is year eleven for yep. him and Giannis together in Milwaukee, which is so remarkable when you look at the big picture of all the player movement across the league. I think the only play, the only other teammates who've played together longer in the NBA Might be are in Golden end. State, yeah. and that is with Clay Thompson and and Draymond Green and. Steph Curry. Uh, and so 11 years in Milwaukee together, you know, building this franchise up. I, I just think those two in particular, just they're the cornerstone uh, of this franchise. And, and now that Chris is, you know, decidedly moving into the, you know, kind of number three option on the team, you know, I think of him in context of, you know, some other number three options that we've seen over the years. I think you, you referenced that piece from Eric Name at The Athletic. One of the examples that he referenced there is one that I've been thinking about, which is Ray Allen with the Celtics. Yeah, If Chris can kind of use that as an example later in his career, so obviously Ray Allen, high-volume scorer in Milwaukee, in Seattle, before he joined up with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce with the Boston Celtics, and they won a title together in 2008. You know, Ray Allen was such an important part of those teams, uh, but he had to accept a different kind of role. And like you mentioned with Chris, he's he's been very flexible about wanting to accept those different kinds of roles. So, so do you think the Ray Allen, the Celtics Ray Allen can be the type of model maybe that that Chris can approach uh you know, this new role with Damian Lillard on the offense? Yeah, I think it's I saw that one too. It's a good comparison. Um I think the interesting thing about that Celtics team is those three guys were a little more close in their talent level than than sure. these three. Uh, but that's one that I thought of. The other one that I thought of, it's not a great comparison, but it's like over the course of two eras with that team is Clay Thompson. Because mm-hmm. when Kevin Durant arrived, you had that super pairing of, of KD and, and Steph. And Clay Thompson at that point was is I, I think we can say was probably a little better than Chris is at this point in sure. his career. Um, but even now, it's not the best comparison, but where Clay Thompson is as a player because of the injuries and some of the things that have eroded a little bit, but what he's still capable of doing, that's very comparable to where Chris is at now, especially. And I think Clay is a player that we look at the, the volume of threes, which are important, but because of that, you look at, yeah, I'll take Clay Thompson on this team. 
And Chris isn't necessarily in that same conversation when I think he's going to have a very comparable year to Clay Thompson. And I think one of the things that I think both Clay Thompson and Chris Middleton have in common is they're both pretty underrated defensive players. Yeah. I think Clay is, you know, Clay may be a little bit better of an on ball defender, but Chris is a really smart team defender. He's always in the right place. Getting in the passing lanes, you know, maybe he doesn't have the athleticism pop that he that he did as kind of a three and D player when he came into the league, um, but he always knows where to be in in you know in those uh, matchups in the in the title run. You know, he was he was defending Kevin he was, Durant. He was taking Kevin Durant. He was yeah. defending a lot of uh, a lot of those high level wing talents, and I think that is that's one of the issues that the Bucks have had over the years is that. You know they've they've tasked Chris Middleton with a lot of difficult lot, difficult matchups over the years. You know we saw Drew Holiday defend Jimmy Butler last year. Uh, that didn't always go so great. Um, uh, Jason Tatum the year before, Kawhi Leonard in the in the year that he was on the Toronto Raptors. So I think those big wing players have always been kind of the Bucks' kryptonite. Yeah. Um, and so maybe. Uh, and, and I think defensively, this is this is a different team than it was before. You know, the, this is the Bucks are going to be an offense first team. Uh, this is going to be the greatest offense we've ever seen in Milwaukee, probably. But the defense is where we're going to have those challenges, and the defense on the wing, on the perimeter in particular, because you you still have Brook Lopez, you still have Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, who form arguably the best defensive front court in the league in like the last decade, probably Um, both, you know, defensive player of the year candidates. So I think you have that back end anchor to the defense, Um, but it's the perimeter where, where the questions are going to arise. Yeah. And so for me too, the big thing is that's the kryptonite of the Bucks is those bigger wing players. It's the kryptonite of like ninety percent of NBA teams. It's, it's the most so, difficult position to defend. It, is, yeah. it has haunted the Bucks for the last couple of years. But to me, the biggest difference is, um, you know, last year and the year prior to that, in years past, if you couldn't defend them, it was almost uh, doubly troublesome because the Bucks ran into half court troubles of their own mm-hmm. offensively. Um, now you you would certainly say, I don't know if we've done anything to help our case there, but we're going to be able to score on the other end and. One of the names we haven't mentioned yet is Malik Beasley, who may be the biggest X factor on this team in that nobody was going to confuse Malik Beasley with an all-defensive player coming into this season. Mm-hmm. But from day one, the Bucks have said, this is our guy that we want to score. I think his role changed since you acquired Dame Lillard. Because, a little bit. Uh, he yeah. was going to be the offensive guy before that trade. Um, but Adrian Griffin has liked what he's seen, and I think we've certainly seen the effort on the defensive end in the preseason for him. He was a prototypical 3-and-D guy when he came out of college with his wingspan and, and length and his shooting ability. So, look, we don't need you to be Drew Holiday, but if he can hold his own in some of those assignments and just doesn't get killed, that's going to be huge for the team because then I think you've really solved who's the two-guard. Yeah, he. I mean, do you expect him to be the starting shooting guard on, on for opening the, night next week against the, Philadelphia? Yeah, at least for the time being. I mean, he's been starting, and the fact that he said it at media day, too, I've never seen so many open shots as what I've gotten with Giannis and Dame on the floor. And then you thought after the fact, like, wait a minute, when would he have that even in, in a practice? Oh, if he's on the floor with them, he's got to be starting. Yeah, he's he is a terrific shooter, though. Like he can he can really let it fly. Uh, and so he's going to with the type of gravity that Giannis has that Dame Lillard has. He's going to have some real open looks on the offensive end. And when, and, you know, the degree to which. He will be a really impactful player. Will will 
have a lot to do with how effective he can be on the defensive end. Well, and I think the big thing is he's a movement shooter. The Bucks, Dame is too, but the mm-hmm. Bucks have never had that. You know, like Grayson Allen's a good shooter. He was a catch and shoot guy. He would yeah. maybe take a dribble and sidestep and get off a shot. Malik Beasley can get a shot from anywhere. And, you know, Ray Allen took 528 threes. That's a team record 20 years ago. Dame Lillard has averaged close to 600 three attempts per <laughs> year every year of the league. Malik Beasley's got a couple of 550 years. So those two guys alone are going to get up a lot of threes this year. I think we're going to have some open shots for them, open shots for Brooke Lopez. Bobby Portis is a pretty solid three-point shooter in his own right. This offense is going to be really, really fun to watch. So, uh, Justin Garcia from the Bucks Radio Network, thank you so much for joining us here on WTMJ Nights, and thank you all for sticking with me uh, throughout this show. Uh, my name is Dan Schaefer. You can find my work at therecombobulationarea.news. You can find me on Twitter at Dan R. Schaefer, where I'm occasionally tweeting about things other than the Milwaukee Bucks. So uh, thank you once again for joining us on WTMJ Nights. We'll see you next time.